Please take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And it's an honor for me to, uh, to be here. Sorry about that. I bring greetings to you from my boss and the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, where I teach, uh, Dr. Al Moeller. Some of you would be familiar with that name. And uh, my friend and colleague Bruce Ware was here this past uh, Lord's Day. Uh, it's funny uh, how Bruce and I follow each other around the country. This is not the first time we have been in successive uh, weeks in the same church, 365,000 churches in America. And it's amazing how often we uh, are not only come to the same church, but one Sunday after the next. We're also uh, grateful for uh, uh, someone from your church, Jessica Gardner, who is a student that we're proud of. I see her just about every day at the seminary, and um, uh, she's uh, proud to be from this church. I'm originally from just down the river, uh, down in Osceola, Arkansas is my home, and I uh, grew up there, but now I teach uh, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, but it's a great honor to be here, great honor to be here today. There's a wonderful promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, where the Bible says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Well, how do you know? If God is for you, it's a very important question when you consider the alternative. How then do we know whether God supports us or whether he does not? If you want to get married and nothing ever works out, does that mean God is against you? If you marry the person of your dreams, does that mean God is for you? If you want to have children but are unable to do so, does that mean God is against you? And if you have all the children that you wanted, they turned out wonderfully, does that mean that God is for you? If you lose your job or you can't get a job, does that mean God is against you? And what if you have unprecedented success in your job? Does that mean God is for you? If you live in your dream house, does that mean that God is for you? Or if you can't stand the house in which you live, does that mean that God is against you? If you always have money trouble, does that mean God is against you? And if you win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, does that mean that God is for you? How do you know if God is for you or God is against you? Well, in the final analysis, none of the things that I've just mentioned are any indication one way or the other because all of the bad things that I have mentioned here have happened to those God is clearly for and all the good things I've mentioned here have happened to those God is dead set against. So how do we know whether God is for us or whether he is against us? <clears throat> well, we know that God is for us because of what the Bible says he's done for us. Because of the unchanging truth of God, not because of changing circumstances. And the Bible records what God has done for us. So this is how we know whether God is for us or not. Now, there are two sentences in my text here, Romans 8, 31, first sentence, what then shall we say to these things? Second sentence, if God is for us, who is against us? Now, as a seminary professor, you know I'm duty-bound to mention Greek at least once while I'm here. And it's very important in this case. The first word in the second sentence is our, our word if. But you've heard before, I'm sure, about how Eskimos have, you know, 16 different words or something like that describing different kinds of snow heavy, wet snow, light, fluffy snow, and so forth. So in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, they had several different words spelled differently to indicate different shades of 
of if. We just have one word for that, and the context has to tell us what we mean. A man might say, well, I'm going fishing tomorrow if it doesn't rain. Well, he might or he might not, depending on the circumstances. But another man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if the sun comes up. He's going fishing regardless of the circumstances. That's the kind of word if that's used at the beginning of verse 2. It's uh, the second sentence here. It's almost as though we could translate it, since God is for us. What is it then that convinced Paul in order to convince us that, that God is for us? Again, look at it. What then shall we say to these things? And you can almost see the Apostle Paul stroke his chin at that point and think about it. What do we say to these things? And as he thinks about these things, these things convince Paul and should convince believers in Christ today that God is for us. What are these things? Well, in one sense, it's the whole book of Romans up to this point. But in another sense, it's the things he's just been speaking of in the immediate context. So, for example, we know that God is for us because in verses 26 and 27, which begins the paragraph this verse is in, because there, he says that the Holy Spirit he gives to us when we come to Christ helps us pray when we don't know what to pray. Look at verses 26 and 27. And, to the, and in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, that's the Heavenly Father, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling in believers, is. Because he, the Holy Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So in other words, in those times when you don't know what to pray, you don't know which is the best way to go. You don't know what's right or wrong, which is wisest, which is not. You have no idea. You don't know what to pray. You want to pray, but you don't know what to pray. The Spirit of God prays for us, the Bible says. And in those times when you can't pray, maybe it's because just your heart is so heavy. You have come in, you just cast yourself across the bed, and all you can do is sort of groan Godwardly, oh God. Your heart is so broken. Your heart is so heavy. Or maybe it's because you're in so much physical pain that the pain so dominates your thinking you can't really put two thoughts together. Maybe you're so medicated at a certain point because of illness or pain you can't put two thoughts together in your mind. The Bible says the Spirit of God prays for us in those times. In the worst times of life, when your heart is so heavy, you, you don't know what to pray. Your pain is so great, you can't even think. You can't put two thoughts together. God is not in heaven wringing his hands saying, oh, if he could only pray, I would do something. If she could only utter some prayer, I would help. But bless her heart, she can't pray. He can't pray. In those worst moments of life when we are most desperately in need of prayer, either direction in our prayer or just the ability to pray, but we can't pray, God doesn't abandon us. By his spirit, he prays for us, encoding upon those Godward groans the very will of God. Okay. The spirit himself intercedes for us. And what percentage of the prayers of the Holy Spirit do you think are answered? 
I would guess it's pretty close to the same percentage of the prayers of Jesus that are answered, wouldn't you? And as if that weren't enough, that the Spirit himself is praying for us, it says, verse 27, he intercedes according to the will of God. So he knows what the will of God is in those areas. We don't know what to pray. We don't know the will of God. He does, and he prays for us. And when we can't pray, we just sort of groan Godwardly. He encodes upon those groans the very will of God. And Paul says, you know what, if God will do that, if when I most desperately need prayer but I can't pray, he prays for me, God is for me. But we also know God is for us because of what he says he's done for us in verse 28, the famous Romans 8:28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse that's of great comfort to us. Now, I've observed in recent years that people are shying away from bringing in Romans 8.28 because they've seen people use it flippantly. They've seen people use it carelessly and callously. When people are on the raw edge of pain and they just throw out Romans 8.28, that's not the time. Romans 8.28 is not when people are angry at God or they're crying out, they're just responding emotionally to some awful thing that's happened. Romans 8.28 is when a person is really looking for answers. They've calmed down a little bit, and they're really searching why. But it's one of the most wonderful promises in the Bible. We shouldn't give it up. But what is interesting here, have you ever noticed how it begins and how it's connected in the context there? It begins with, and we know. We know this great promise Romans 8, 28. How how do we know that? How do we know that in the worst times of life, that's when we apply Romans 8, 28, right? The worst things that happen, horrible things. That's when we turn to Romans 8, 28 for comfort. How do we know in those times that God is causing all things to work together for our ultimate good and for his glory? Have you ever connected it to what we just saw about the Spirit praying for us? That in those worst moments of life, when you most need prayer, but you don't know what to pray, you can't pray, the Spirit of God is praying for you, the Spirit himself, and he's praying the very will of God. And therefore, in those worst moments of life, we know, Paul says, to begin verse 28, that's how we know that God causes all things to work together for good, that in his almighty hands he can take evil things and cause the divine alchemy to occur so that they turn out for our gold, our eternal good, and for his glory. So this means that everything in the life of Christian, of Christian even those things which are evil, they work together in the hands of God. for our ultimate good, and for his glory. You ever come across the Old Testament version of Romans 8, 28? Psalm 119, 91 says, For all things are your servants, even the devil. As Martin Luther said, yes, he's the devil, but he's God's devil. And the book of Job tells us that though the devil may be permitted to do some awful things, and you can't imagine anything happening worse than the things that happened to Job, yet he was on God's chain. He did that only because... He could do that only because God permitted it. So God causes everything in the life of the believer, even those things which are evil, to work together for, his, for our ultimate good and for his glory. And note that it doesn't say that we are to put on rose-colored glasses and call 
bad things good. We're not to just look and say, well, what's the silver lining in the cloud? Some clouds don't have silver linings. These are things which you would say, there is no good in this. This is evil. It is pure evil. And God would say, amen. You're right. It is. It's pure evil. But the good news is God can take pure evil and work it together with other things in his almighty hands for his people so that the outcome is, is gold. What's the most evil thing that's ever happened in the world? The wicked crucifixion of Jesus. And God took the most evil, the most satanic, the worst thing that's ever happened, and he turned it into the greatest blessing the world could ever have. And that's what he does for the believer. God is able to take the worst things that have ever happened, things which evaluated by themselves, they're evil. He doesn't change them, they're still evil, but he causes them to work together with other things in his hands. So a divine alchemy occurs, and the result is, is, is eternal gold and glory. You take sodium, it will kill you. You take chloride, it can kill you. You combine them together, and in proper amount, salt can be beneficial. God can take things which individually are evil and cause them to work together so that the outcome is our good and his glory. So that means nothing in the life of a believer ever works to our disadvantage. It's not saying that God causes it to just be so that in eternity he, he neutralizes it and it doesn't hurt us anymore. The memory of it is gone. The pain is gone. He actually turns it into good and for our eternal good and for his glory. So nothing in the life of a Christian ultimately is harmful for us. Now, Romans eight twenty eight is just the opposite for unbelievers. He causes all things to work together for evil to those who don't love God to those who are not called according to his purpose. For all eternity, the best things that ever happen to an unbeliever, they will curse them for for all eternity. For the greatest blessings, the best things that ever happen to unbelievers turn out to judge them for all eternity because unbelievers fail to thank God for them. They fail to use them in proper ways. They fail to use them for his kingdom, for God's glory. And so for all eternity, they will wish they had never been blessed in their lives. The Bible tells us that God takes the worst things that have ever happened to us and makes them an eternal blessing. So that if we knew everything God knew and we had his heart, we would have allowed everything God has allowed in our lives. Now, only a Christian can affirm that, and a Christian can only affirm that by faith. Like many of you, I've lived long enough to have some pretty awful things happen. Some evil things done to me. Things that, again, if from, if from this day, if I could go back in time, I would change them. But I have this great promise that God can take even the most evil things that have ever happened to me and turn them into things I will praise God for for all eternity. In a group this size, I, I can say, you know, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you? And I'm sure there are things that somebody should have been put in prison for. There have been some unspeakable things that have happened to some of the people in this room. And yet, based upon the Word of God, 
There will come a day, perhaps never in this life, but there will come a day when we will see the truth of this text and we will see that indeed God caused everything in our lives to work together for our ultimate good and for his glory. Not that he just neutralizes them. The memory is gone. Those memories don't hurt us anymore. The pain is gone and forgotten. He turns them into things which are actually blessings to us. The Apostle Paul says if God will do that, If God will take the worst things that have ever happened to me, and remember the man who wrote this had been beaten. He said, I can't even remember the times I've been beaten for the faith. How many times have you been beaten? I've been left for dead. I've been stoned and left for dead. And he has this long litany in 2 Corinthians, all the things that have happened to him for the sake of the gospel. That is the man who wrote this verse. A man with far more difficulties than all of us put together, probably. That's the man who said, God causes even the worst things that have ever happened to me and turns them into my eternal good and his glory. And Paul says, you know what? If God will do that, God is for me. And third, he says, there's another thing that convinced Paul and ought to convince us that God is for us. It's because of what he's done in verses 29 and 30, a passage often called Paul's golden chain. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren, many made like Jesus. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. If you're a believer in Christ, the Bible says here that God foreknew you. It means far more than he just knew all about you. It means far more than he just looked down through the corridors of time in advance and saw the things that you would do. It's a more intimate word than that. If you're in Christ, really the word for you means that God foreloved you. Knowing all about you, knowing every sin you would commit, he loved you anyway. And he predestined you to become like Jesus Christ. Christ, to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, that Jesus would be the firstborn of many, made like him. Not as the Mormons believe, we're not going to be made like God, as Jesus is God. Rather, we'll be made like him in his sinless, perfect humanity, reflecting the glory of God forever and ever. Now, if the Bible said we were going to be made like angels, we would have rejoiced at that forever. And in fact, there's a lot of confusion, certainly in the world, about this idea. I mean, you go back to It's a Wonderful Life, you know, and Jimmy Stewart's trying to help Clarence get his angel's wings, right? He was a man, he went to heaven, and now he's trying to get angel wings. And we often see this picture. When the Twin Towers fell in New York, people spoke of them, they're all now angels in heaven. And, and sometimes people make that reference, now they're God's angels in heaven. People don't morph into angels in heaven. That would be a decline. We are creatures made in the image of God. And we are going to be made like Jesus Christ, not just like angels. If it were that, again, we'd be astounded. Twice in the book of Revelation, the apostle John falls on his face to worship an angel. And the angel has to say, don't do that. Now, John knew better than that. John's probably an old man by this time. John had a pretty good theology, don't you think? The apostle John knew that you don't worship angels, you only worship God. But the appearance of an angel was so glorious, he couldn't help himself. Reflexively, he began to worship this angel. If we were going to be made that glorious, we would have had amazement forever. 
But folks, it's infinitely better than that. We are predestined to become like Jesus Christ. And if that weren't all, whom he predestined, these he also called. Through the gospel, he called you to himself if you were in Christ. Whenever the gospel is preached, there's what theologians call a general call that goes out to all who hear the gospel. But there is by his Holy Spirit a special call that comes when he comes to your dead life, just like he came to Lazarus in that grave, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. If he'd said, come forth, they all would have come forth. But he said, Lazarus, come forth. And for you, there was that Sunday morning like this morning. There was that Bible study in a dorm room. For me, it was a Thursday night down the river in Osceola during a series of meetings. And through the preaching of the gospel, I heard God calling me like he had never called me before. And he didn't call those sitting around me that night, not in the way he called me. And he had no obligation to do so. I did nothing to deserve to be called of God. And I contributed nothing to the team. And God didn't need me, but God called me graciously to himself. And if that weren't enough, Paul goes on to say, and those whom he called these he also justified, which means far more than the mere forgiveness of all of our sins, if we could even speak like that, having infinite sins all forgiven. But that just brings you back to zero. That makes you neutral. To get to heaven, we must have more than no sin. If all of our sins are forgiven, that just makes us sort of neutral. But we must have infinite righteousness, and we have none of that. But Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, always keeping the law of God, never breaking the law of God. And Jesus earned heaven. So is salvation by works? Oh, you bet it is, but not yours. Someone had to work for your salvation, and Jesus worked 33 years, always doing the will of God, always keeping the will of God, never breaking the law of God, and Jesus earned heaven. And that qualified him to be a substitute for lawbreakers like us, and he willingly offered himself on the cross, and God gave the wrath of justice upon Jesus that people in Christ might be forgiven and be justified, declared righteous, or in other words, to put it in a stunningly true way, he gives believers in Christ credit for having lived the life of Jesus. You are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When you believe into Christ, and that's what faith is. We don't just believe in Jesus. We believe into Jesus. You've heard that we are united by faith with Christ. That's what happens. We believe into Christ, united with him, and we get credit for his life, and he gets credit for our life. And what did that get Jesus? The atomic bomb of the wrath of God. And we get the righteousness of God in Christ. God looks as you as though you as though, as though you heal those people, as though you had the perfectly pure heart of Christ, as though you had the mind of Christ, as you taught all those people and said those things that Jesus said in the Gospels. And then, as if that weren't enough, these whom he, whom he justified, these he also glorified, made like Christ forever and ever without end. And so, Paul says, if God will do that for me, God is for me. 
even if I get stoned and left for dead, even if I'm beaten times without number, if God will do all these things for me. And so you can sort of see the Apostle Paul when he says, what do we, what do we say to these things? What things, Paul? All right, he, when he brings me to himself, he gives me his Holy Spirit, who, among all the other things he does, he prays for me. When I don't know what to pray, I'm desperately in need of prayer. I don't know what to pray, or I can't pray. He prays for me. In the worst times of my life, he's praying for me, and he's praying the very will of God. And then, as a result of that, he takes everything in my life, even the worst things that have ever happened to me, the worst things that ever will happen to me, and he doesn't just somehow neutralize them when I go to heaven and I don't remember them anymore and they don't hurt me anymore and those memories are all gone. No, I remember them and I rejoice in them because I see how I am blessed forever through them. Paul would say, if I'd had a choice, I wouldn't have let them stone me. I wouldn't let them beat me so many times. But God permitted it, and now I rejoice forever in it. If God will take the worst things that have ever happened to me and turn them into gold, God is for me. And then, before eternity, knowing all about me, Every sin I would ever commit in my life, knowing how I would turn and run from him, and he would have to track me down and call me to himself like Lazarus, spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Yet he would call me to himself, and he had no obligation to call me. And he didn't call others sitting around me in the same way he called me, but he called me to himself. And then predestined me to be not just as glorious as an angel, but to be like Jesus Christ. And then he gave me, me, credit for having lived the perfectly pure life of Jesus. And for all eternity, he's going to make me like Jesus Christ. What shall we say to these things? We could say a lot. But here's one thing we can say for sure. God is for us. Well then, if this is true, if God is for us like this, we might say, then why is my life so hard? If this is true, if this is more than just some Sunday morning sermon platitude, why is it when I go out there and when I live my life Monday through Saturday, why is my life so stinking hard if God is for me? Reminds me of the title of a devotional book for junior high kids. If, my, if God is for me, why can't I get my locker open? Well, life is hard because we do have forces against us. That doesn't say nothing is against us. There's a story in the Old Testament book of Judges, Judges chapter 6. You may recall the, the cycles of the judges. They would be faithful to God, and God would bless them, but then they would get used to that and, and sort of take God for granted, and they be, begin to be unfaithful again, and God would allow their enemies to come and rule over them for a while. So they got a taste of what it was like to be ruled by their enemies rather than being ruled by God. And they'd get sick of that and they'd return and come back to God and he would bless them for a while, but then they would become unfaithful again. There are a number of these cycles in the book of Judges and this was a low time. And God was allowing a group called the Midianites to rule over them. 
And the Midianites would let the Israelites raise their crops, harvest their crops, and then come in and take the harvest. Thank you very much. And it was at such a harvest time that a man named Gideon was down in a, in a wine press. It's something sort of like a, a baptistry-sized hole in the ground that you'd walk down into, and they would, you know, press the grapes in there. He's down in the wine press trying to thresh a little grain. You can't thresh a lot down in a wine press. But he's down there throwing it up above ground level, and the wind would blow the chaff. He's down there doing that. I'm sure a lot of this is coming down on him with his sweat, and he's just covered in this dust and chaff and thinking about how hard his life is. It's miserable to have to work this hard and try to hope that no one will see him and that he can feed his family a little bit of bread from that. And as he's thinking about all this, suddenly this hole in the ground is illuminated. Gideon turns, and there's an angel there. And this angel says, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. The Lord is with you. Like Paul has just told us, God is for us. And based on what he's about to say, I can sort of see old Gideon put his pitchfork down and put his hands over the end of that. And he thinks for a minute, and then he says to that angel, Oh, my Lord, if God is with us, why did all this happen to us? He says, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? In other words, you're standing there telling me that God is with us. If that's so, why is my life so hard? When Paul says in Romans 8.31 that God is for us, he doesn't say that nothing is against us. In fact, Paul tells us in other places quite specifically that the world is against us. Jesus himself said, if the world hated me, he will certainly hate my followers. And the world is not a conducive place to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a lot easier in our country than a lot of places. We don't have a lot of fear today that people are going to break in our homes and capture us and cut our heads off or set us on fire. But it's getting increasingly difficult to be a Christian in this country. And just about everything you are for, because the Bible is for it, the world is increasingly against. Do you believe marriage is to be between a man and a woman for life? Well, culture is increasingly against that idea. You believe that once conceived, a baby should be brought to life? Well, the world is increasingly against that idea. And so to be a Christian is to be swimming upstream against the world. So the world is against us. And the Bible says the flesh is against us, that part of us in which sin still remains. Though we have the Holy Spirit, we have this new love for righteousness. We love the holy word of God. We used to find boring or irrelevant. We love, we love the holy people of God. We love the holy will of God. We, we have holy longings we didn't have before. We want to live in a body without sin anymore. And we want to live in a perfect world without sin anymore. And yet, still in that same chest beats a sin factory that still causes us to love sin to some degree so that when we sin we sin because at that moment we want sin we want sin more than righteousness even though we might 
also say, I wish God could rip my heart out of my chest and throw it as far across the universe as he can, and I'm, re- I'm willing to be made sinless and perfect right now. That's why Paul would say that there's a war within us where the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit so that we don't always do what we want to do. And as long as that battle is going on within us, that makes life hard. We make sinful choices that make life harder, may produce lifelong scars in our bodies or in our relationships. When we sin because God loves us, the Bible says he disciplines us like a loving father. And discipline hurts sometimes. And discipline makes life hard. And the Bible says the devil is against us. He's God's devil. He's on God's chain. But just like the devil made Job's life a lot harder for a while, so sometimes satanic forces can make our life hard. So it doesn't say that nothing or no one is against us. The world is against us. The flesh is against us. The devil is against us. But what Paul is saying here is that regardless of the forces against us, they're nothing if God is for us. The late James Montgomery Boyce said it's as though the the Apostle Paul has in mind here an old-fashioned set of scales. And on one hand, he's putting peanuts. Who is against us? Well, I tell you, Paul, it feels like the whole world is against me sometimes, okay? Put a peanut there, plunk. Anything else? Yeah, this sin factory that beats in my chest is against me so often, okay? Put that there, plunk. Anything else? Yeah, the devil's certainly against me, okay? Plunk. Anything else? Well, yeah, I think my boss is against me. You know, plunk, anything else? Yeah, the government's against me. Plunk, plunk, plunk. And then it's as though God, uh, the Apostle Paul puts the anvil of God on the other side. Boom. If God is for us, who are these? Yeah, there's a lot of things against us, a lot of people, a lot of forces against us. But if God is for us, who are they? If God is for us, who can be against us? What effect can they ultimately have? And so, third, what this means is, Because God is for us, nothing or no one can thwart his eternal plan for us. Nothing, no one can thwart God's eternal plan for us. You remember how verse 30 ends? It says he's already glorified us. It's past tense. It's very interesting, isn't it, in the language. In God's mind, he's already glorified us. It's done. When did he plan to do that? Well, all eternity past. God's plan cannot be thwarted. And the reason why nothing or no one can thwart God's eternal plan is because from all eternity past, he has decreed that. Theologians like Bruce Ware, my colleague who was here last week, speak of different meanings of the term the will of God. Often we just refer to the will of God in one sense, but theologians can distinguish different types of the will of God. For example, there is the decretive will of God and the permissive will of God. It's very helpful to know that distinction. With the permissive will of God, God states his will, but he permits violations of it. For example, here's the will of God. You shall not bear false witness. Well, that's God's will, isn't it? It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's God's will that we never bear false witness. Does he permit people to bear false witness? Yes, we've all done it, right? Not without consequences, not without responsibility. But he declares his will, but he permits some violations of it. 
Here's the will of God too. Let there be light. Could there not have been light? No. God decreed there would be light. In your life, God permits suffering. He permitted it in Job's life. He permitted Satan to do some things that allowed suffering. He permits you to make some choices that will cause you to suffer. He permits us to live in a world that can hurt us and make us suffer. He permits suffering, but friends, he has declared glory. He has decreed glory. God is for us, and if God is for us, who is against us? He permits opposition. This opposition makes life hard, but he has decreed glory forever. And so when God is for you, nothing or no one can stop his eternal plan for you. If you are truly a Christian and you have fallen under false teaching in the past, those false teachers cannot cause you to lose your salvation. You may have left some religious group that now condemns you for leaving them, but there is no religious group, no official that can decree that you lose your salvation. And neither unbelieving parents, nor an unbelieving spouse, nor an unbelieving boss can so confine you or restrict you from following Christ as you would want that it would ever cause him to reject you. And when it says, who can be against us, let's realize that that who includes you. When God is for you, who is against you? And that who can include you. Because of that sin factory that beats in our chest, often true believers are tempted to think, I've crossed a line. I've committed some particular sin, or I've committed a sin so many times that I finally exhausted the patience of God. And though I don't want that to happen, though I want God, I want heaven more than anything, I fear that I have crossed a line. My friend, you didn't put yourself into God's grace. Praise God, you can't remove yourself. Anyone who hears that and thinks that gives them permission to do whatever they want and they'll still go to heaven is probably a stranger to grace in the first place. Rather, that's intended for people of a tender conscience who are fearful that something in their past is going to be their eternal downfall. Though they have repented, though they've asked God for forgiveness, though there's something in their life right now that they hate and if they were able, they would remove it from their life, but they can't seem to be successful in overcoming this sin. And they are terrified that God will at last close the door on heaven, though they want heaven more than anything else. My friend, if God is for us, who is against us? That who includes you? When it says here that God foreknew you, he knew every sin you would ever commit before you committed it, and he loved you anyway. He knew every sin you would commit before you came to Christ. He knew every sin you would commit after you came to Christ. And he loved you anyway and called you to himself and gave you credit for the life of Christ. Most of the time I feel like the famous Jonathan Edwards felt in his well-known statement, my sins are infinite 
upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. That's the way I feel most of the time. But sometimes I will think, I'm a great sinner, but at least I haven't cut anybody's head off. I haven't been a serial killer. I haven't burned someone alive. And I will compare myself to someone else and think that I come across okay. But you know what God knows? God knows how many more sins you would have committed than you have if you'd just been given the opportunity. If you'd had someone else's circumstances, if you'd been born in another culture, in another situation, if you had had more temptation than you've had, if you'd had greater pressure than you've had, you would have sinned even more than you have. God knows not only every sin we would ever commit, he knows every sin we would have committed if given the opportunity or the pressure or the circumstances. And he loved you anyway. If God is for us, who is against us? And let me wrap this up quickly. First of all, practical terms here, we need to follow Paul's example. And then we need to learn to reason out and rest upon what the Scripture says is true. That's what Paul did, remember? How do I know if God's for me? Well, he sent his Spirit to pray for me when I don't know what to pray. I can't pray. He takes everything in my life, even the worst things in my life, and turns them into my ultimate good and his glory. Before the foundation of the world, knowing every sin I would ever commit, he loved me anyway, and he predestined me to be like Jesus. And he gave me credit for having lived the life of Jesus. And he called me to himself when he had no obligation to do so. And he's going to make me like Christ forever and ever. Huh. Now that is the truth. So what do I do? Well, that tells me God is for me. We need to follow that pattern to learn to reason out and rest upon what the Scripture says is true. When you believe you cross a line, you, that God can't forgive you anymore, that, that you finally exhausted the patience of God, what is the truth? The truth is verse 1 of this passage. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the truth. And in so many circumstances in life, I know what you feel, but what is the truth? I know what your eyes see, but what does the Bible say is the truth? I know what your circumstances are telling you, but what is the truth? The world... The flesh, the devil, will always cause us to try to believe something contrary to the truth. But like Paul, we need to determine what is the truth and to rest upon that. Second, when God is for you, he is for you forever. If he has been before you from before the foundation of the world, if he's been, if he's been for you, knowing all about you and every sin you would ever commit, you can be sure he is for you forever. So don't doubt his love. John Owen is often considered the greatest of the Puritan theologians, and I was reading a book of his called Communion with God, and I was on page 13, just reading along. Nothing really jumped out at me yet. And then I read one sentence that, like a light switch, turned on tears. Here's the sentence. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is what do you think he's going to say? What's the greatest burden you can put on the heart of God? What's the most unkind thing you can do to God? Here's what he said. It's not 
to believe that he loves you. You've come to Christ, and he gives you his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit prays for you when you can't pray, when you don't know what to pray, and you wonder if he loves you. He takes the worst things that have ever happened to you, doesn't just neutralize them. He blesses you through them forever and ever. Even the worst things that have ever happened to you, and you wonder if he loves you. From before the foundation of the world, knowing every sin you would ever commit, knowing all about you, every evil thing you would ever think, everything in your heart, and yet he loved you anyway and predestined you to be like Jesus. And then he called you when he had no obligation to do so and gave you credit for having lived the life of Jesus and is going to make you like Jesus forever and ever, and you wonder if he loves you. God is for you. He's for you forever. And finally, the obvious question is, is God for you? If your answer is, is a humble, perhaps even trembling, yes, I do believe that he is for me because I love him and that's because he loved me first. And just rejoice and be ravished by what the truth of that means and implies. To be able to say, God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. And if you don't know if God is for you, realize he is for all who will come to Christ. Regardless of who you are or what you've done or how many times you've done it. If you will come to him right now, he will be for you forever. But... If you've not come to Christ, realize that God is against you. And you may look around and say, well, I wouldn't trade places with anyone in this room. My life is going better than just about anyone I know. So I don't need God to be for me. It looks like he's for me enough as it is, though I haven't come to Christ. Well, it may appear to be so, but you will find one day that you have made him your enemy. And you'll stand before a holy God and realize in terror what that means to have God against you forever. But if you will come to Christ, regardless of whether you get the spouse you want or the children you want or the house you want or the job you want or the education you want or the income you want or anything else, if you will come to Christ, God is for you. And if God is for you, who is against you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gospel. <clears throat> we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for Jesus and for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for this wonderful promise. And Lord, I pray that through it you would make Jesus Christ irresistibly beautiful to every person in this room today. Cause people, as it were, to want to run to Christ and find what is in Christ alone and to know that God is for them, not because of anything we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us, and we come to him. This I ask in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.